Hey everybody, welcome to Tropes to Infinity. My name is Eric Block. With me, as always, is my co-host Gene Freeman, and we're opening with Mastodon's Crusher Destroyer, because we're going to be talking about the career of Big Van Vader, nicknamed the Mastodon, who passed away last week at the age of 63. We'll be going over a handful of his best matches, including the infamous Stan Hansen eyeball match. From there, we talk about the latest 14-star Okada Omega match and Dave Meltzer's broken rating system before transitioning to CM Punk's latest UFC defeat. But before we get into all that, we have our movie of the week, the Netflix documentary, Take Your Pills, which explores the physical and cultural effects of Adderall and other ADHD medications. Closing out the show, we give our next movie of the week, as well as our books and records of this week. So stick around for that. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to the show. This will be a fireside chat. We we did pretty much a whole show and just lost to the ether. So if it sounds like we're covering ground that we talked about already, then that's probably why. And we'll see what else has happened since last week. So we'll just jump into it. We never did talk about movie of the week. Take your pills. Yeah. So even though we already talked about it, let's touch on that. Let's do a recap. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suggested this documentary called Take Your Pills because I saw it on Netflix and watched the trailer and I was like, this seems like just a straight up commercial for Adderall. Mm-hmm. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of, you know, uh, cautionary elements to this thing. But luckily, you know, fortunately, the actual movie is, you know, it's a warning. Yeah. Don't abuse this stuff. See, I watched it and I thought like, yeah, this is definitely a cautionary thing. But, you know, since I didn't see the trailer, I can't say. I've always heard ever since, you know, I learned that the, people who make the trailers and the people who make the movies don't have anything to do with each other. I was like, well, you got to remember that. Yeah. Cause sometimes like a trailer will make a movie seem like kind of movies, not. And, uh, does it go for like documentaries and shit too? As far as I know, I mean, anything that's released by a production company, I mean, everybody's trying to make money, but I mean, that's, it's actually, I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that up. If you, not necessarily you, but if you think of documentaries as like, the truth and like Hollywood movies is fiction. It, it's all fiction. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And in a Herzog way, a documentary, just cause they use like supposedly real footage. They, they had an agenda. They, they had a, you know, a, a message they were trying to get across. Yeah. And no such thing as objective cinema. Yeah. No, I just mean as documentaries as like labors of love or whatever. Like it was somebody's thing. Well, I or mean, I, what's I, more a labor of love than a fucking movie, right? Clerks. That's yeah, not a labor of love. Yeah, I guess so. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And that trailer made that movie look like the wrong movie. So there you go. Yeah, right. Yeah, good point. Um The Usual Suspects is another great example. The trailers made it look like pulp fiction when it, it wasn't. But you can understand because it's a very popular movie, right? Yeah. Pulp fiction. Everybody likes pulp fiction. Um but anyway, yeah. So take your pills. No, not a commercial for Adderall. I um was reminded of the documentary Bigger, Stronger, Faster, which is about steroids. I thought it had kind of the same message, which is cautionary, but it's like, yeah, you can take it. You know, if you know what you're doing, if you're careful, it can be beneficial. Uh, and that was kind of the message I got from both of those movies about their prospective drugs, even though it's like, you think of like steroids is like, it's all bad, but it's like, well, no, if you do it the right way, it's okay. And Adderall is probably the same way. I mean, for one thing, like, if you're prescribing, you know, stimulants to somebody who has, um, what do we call it? AD, ADHD. AD, yeah. I started to say OCD. 
Mm. But um, like, and it, it like there is a a percentage of people who actually have that who have that condition, and um, you know, it, it works. But I, I think you know, a long time ago, people got to the point where they're saying, "Hey, you know, I think you're just handing this stuff out." I, I think a lot of these are misdiagnoses, and I think that's true. Yeah. But um, like in this movie, when it said if you take amphetamines, if you take stimulants, that'll make you feel like you're doing better at whatever you're doing. So it's like, and maybe, you know, there, you might actually get a better grade on the test, but I thought it was important. They pointed this out in the movie. It's not actually making you any smarter. I mean, it might make you able to concentrate on something a little better or do something for longer than you were able to, but it was all, you know, you in the first place. So it was inside you all along. Yeah. So it's like, if you want to do drugs to get to do better on something and you think of that and it's like, and they say that in the movie, it's like, you don't think of that as like doing drugs. I, I don't know. Cause you get it from a doctor, even though a lot of people don't get it from doctor, you know, you go buy it from your college classmate or whatever. Yeah. They had like face, they talk about this in the movie. They have like Facebook groups where it's like, Hey, I need some Addy. Anybody have any? I'll buy yeah. it right now. And it's like, I'm pretty sure you can get like the same effects with like cocaine, but it's like, you wouldn't go and buy cocaine to study for a test. Yeah. I feel like Adderall would be cheaper. Probably. Yeah. Because it's like there's a guy in the movie who says that, and they use a line, I think, in the, I must say in the trailer because I just said I didn't see it, but I remember this line being in the trailer. But he says uh, it makes you awesome at everything. That's a side effect. I'm like, that's what I always heard about cocaine, you know? Yeah. And like last week, that's what I said about weed. Like I, I acknowledge that it doesn't affect most people that way. But for me, that's how I feel about weed. It makes you better at everything. Yeah. One of them uh, enhancement smokers, right? Like uh, like John Stewart. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, John Stewart's very successful. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, man, we did a whole show about drugs, and that was the theme. It's like you can do whatever you think you need drugs to do on your own. You probably should. You know, it's a, it's a crutch. If you're using a crutch, you're going to be bad at something. Who knows? But you know, I'm not going to say don't ever take drugs for any reason. Of course, you have to. You take insulin. That's a drug, right? Yeah. And some people look at it that way. Like I, I'm not necessarily, I wouldn't say that, you know, today in the current year, but it would, in the past I've said like, cause I had this drinking problem, right? I was like, well, if I had to just smoke weed just to keep me from drinking, then I would smoke weed every day for the rest of my life. It'd absolutely be worth it. And, um, yeah, it's a, you know, you know, people drink coffee every day and yeah, that's a, that's a drug. That's an addiction, but it's probably you know, a risk reward ratio. If they tried to quit, it'd probably be more trouble than it's worth, you know? Yeah. So it's all a sliding scale, but Adderall is probably, um, it's, it's snuck in under the radar. It's become a big problem. Like, I think everybody's talked about the opioid crisis. People are aware of that now. Trump talked about that. That's another thing he said in the movie. It's like this amphetamine by prescription, it's right behind it. It's not quite as prevalent, but it's getting there. Yeah. And the whole idea of prescription drugs from a doctor, like I think I said to you, like I've listened to Dr. Drew since like 1995 or something ridiculous like that. And he has said that he doesn't think that the medical profession is viable anymore. He's like, I wouldn't advise my own children to become doctors. I wouldn't advise anybody to become a physician. I think it's a broken way to make a living. And for this reason, for prescription drug abuse, because it's like, well, doctors can actually go to jail, can do time for not prescribing opiates, for not prescribing pain medication. That sounds insane. Yeah. 
And then you turn around. So it's like, well, if you ask for it, you got to give it to them. And then you create these terrible drug addicts. It's like I've always said, it will, the level of addiction is enough that it causes you to live in the street, to break into pharmacies, to scrounge through dumpsters, no matter who you are, no matter how much dignity you think you have, just because you need it that bad. So that level of physical addiction, obviously that's not something you want to play with. You get that addicted to something by your doctor, then what's your recourse now? I'm imagining someone being a drug addict. You're not going to go to your doctor and ask for help. Yeah. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm a drug addict. Thanks to you. It's like, oh man, I'm not sure. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Well, rehab's on me. <laughs> yeah. We have a pill for that. Yeah. And it's like, that is what they should do. I mean, that's the best case scenario is you go into your doctor and your doctor's like, look, I've turned you into a drug addict. I'm, I'm sorry, but this, we have to, to deal with this, but no, it's like, ah, drug seeking behavior. That guy's bad. Cut him off. And that's opiates, but I'm sure like the the same dynamic is going on with, you know, amphetamines like they were talking about in, in this thing. I, um, I don't know, maybe it's a generational thing, but I don't remember like a lot of kids being on medication when I was in school. I I don't really remember any, I can't say with certainty that there weren't any, but I just don't remember that. Yeah. I don't know a single person that was on, you know, Ritalin or Adderall. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like my daughter, my daughter's five. She said that somebody in her class may have been on some type of medication or this was actually a conversation we had a while ago. I should ask her to clarify. She might've said that somebody was making a joke about how the kid needed medication because he was acting up. So I I can't remember, but it's like out of the whole class in 2018 in Berkeley, that's not bad. It seems like it's like you, you, you hear, you know, stories about it. it's like, oh, it's it's every other person. But I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's exaggerated like a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's just embellished. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I would certainly not um, give your kid any kind of medication lightly. I mean, I, you know, I get it. It's like anything's supposed to be good for your kid. People do it. But, um, you know, you, you screw them up doing that like pretty quickly. I mean, like generationally, people will, will realize that and see. So hopefully that was just a, a phase that we went through. Yeah. Just over medication or over diagnosis. Yeah. Or even just like gullible parents. I mean, play your baby Mozart and all this stuff. And oh, that kind of stuff. Like that too. It's just, or even like, you know, don't give your kid vaccine or what, whatever crazy story it is. Oh, you got to do this and not that. I, I don't know. It's, it's not really that complicated. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah. Uh, you know, be respectful. Don't don't be a dick. Don't be an asshole. Yeah, only look into someone else's bowl to make sure they have enough. I mean, come on, it's not, it's not rocket science. Yeah, mm. it see that in the Bible. What? The no, Bible? that was uh, that was Louis C.K. Oh, it says do unto others in the Bible. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I know that, but the bowl thing. Yeah, it's like that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. that uh, it that actually predates the Bible. Confucius said that before. Jesus did, you know, that's neither here nor there, but I'm saying it is a pretty universally recognized trait, no matter what your religious uh, proclivities are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did. I liked the film. Take your pills as a film. I, I liked the, some of the editing tricks and the music. Pretty cool. Um, I don't know, maybe like a retro video game type of thing. Maybe going for like a Pac-Man aesthetic. Yeah, actually it, it picked up on that too. Yeah. yeah the only part I found mildly irritating was that one guy who just super liked Adderall a lot. Mm-hmm. 
um, because he is the kind of person that I see every single day and I just don't like them. Yeah. He's a San Francisco techie mm-hmm. who basically just walked in to the city and is a millionaire. So it was like, good for you, I guess, but you're also kind of a douchey retard. Like, and there's a lot of you. Yeah. I, I, don't I mean, I, I'm, well, br- you know, I'm bringing a lot of that to this guy. Yeah. Obviously, but like, I don't know. He just kind of irritated, irritated me, I guess. Well, I don't get irritated because he's rich. I mean, money doesn't make you happy. Yeah, no shit. Um, yeah, he fits a personality. Yeah, I mean, it was thing. mostly the electric unicycle. Mm-hmm. See, it's like, that's, that's like kind of cool, I guess. Like, I would ride that, except that it's like, it, it makes you look a certain way. <laughs> um, so it's like, like, I've, I've, I've had similar discussions to that on the show before where it's like your first instinct is to say do what you want it doesn't matter what other people think but it's like no of course it matters what other people think i mean i i don't walk down the street you know in my underwear or anything that's how i dress my own house yeah of course you gotta think about what other people think yeah i thought it was funny that the guy was like people call me a techie or whatever you know they don't like techies living here but he's doing pretty much everything in his power to play up to that stereotype Mm-hmm. Which I thought was funny. It's like, why do people do that shot of him on his electric unicycle going to some expensive coffee place? Yeah, well, you know, people like that, they probably enjoy the, they relish the identity. Complaining about people who don't like you is part of it. It's like being a hipster. Part of being a hipster is to complain about people who don't like hipsters. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of haters, where, where the hell did that come from? Where that was like a good thing? It was like, you like haters? People hate you? That's good. That validates what you're doing. Uh, it's glory in, in your shame, which I believe is from the Bible, but I might be wrong. Yeah. I mean, there is some truth, truth to the notion that if you're successful at anything, some people will just be straight up jealous. Mm-hmm. But, and I don't know. A lot of people will like what you're doing. Some people will just hate you and think you're an asshole just because. Man, I don't look at it that way at all. I don't. I don't think that anybody hates or is jealous of anybody else for any legitimate reason. It's be- legitimate. I just, they're it's because just they're like, unhappy with their own life. That's any, what I was going to say. It was like, why not me? Any negative emotion that comes your way, you should just be a mirror. I mean, you don't have to throw it back at the person, but just know for yourself that it's, they're unhappy with their self is why they're doing that to you. A hundred percent of the time. There's no exceptions ever. Um, so yeah. Uh, take your pills. Anything else or, not really. I think we covered everything. All right. So I guess our my next our next movie of the week will be Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan on Hulu. Uh, I read the book. Was I think it was the book of the week. At least I talked about it. And we mentioned the movie. So yeah, we'll talk about that next week. Cool. All right. What else is on the agenda? Wrestling. Wrestling. Yeah. Some good wrestling stories. Man. Big Van Vader, he died this week. One of my favorite of all time. And it's not a surprise. Like, about two years ago, he said he only had a year or two left to live. So, you know, sure enough. And um, I had just sent you a couple matches of his. Like, it just kind of happened to be within days of his death. So it was an appropriate time to to talk about it. So I guess, yeah, we'll we'll give our memorial tribute to Vader. What's your what what is your recollection of Vader? You remember him from WWF, right? I remember from WWF. I don't remember him being particularly mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not acrobatic. Right. Um, 
So when you sent me the older matches, I was kind of surprised at his movement. Yeah, that moonsault. His that was mobility, one of his, I guess. One of his signatures. I can't remember if he did a moonsault in any of those matches I showed you, but that was one of his signature moves. Yeah. He did turnbuckle stuff. Yeah. yeah. He had the, the Vader bomb and then the moonsault. The moonsault, I think, he always, like I heard him say in interviews that he hated doing it because it always like hurt his lower back really bad. So he would try to avoid it, but it got a big pop, so he would do it occasionally. Um, But yeah, Vader, uh, just a massive beast of a man, Leon White. They called him the baby bull when he first debuted before he was Vader. But he broke into the business. He was he was he's from LA, if I remember correctly. Played in the NFL. Uh he was a lineman for the Rams, I believe he was the center. Which he said that for those line positions, it's not really about it's about experience as much as anything else. So it's not like you're gonna get somebody else's position. You just gotta wait for the guy who's ahead of you to retire. And I think he was like a, a backup guy at first, and he got injured, so his football career was over, so he turned to wrestling. I can't remember what company this was, but uh, like he went to a match, and like after the match, just like walked backstage, like bought a ticket, was there as a fan, didn't know anybody, just walked into the locker room, and this guy comes up, gets in his face, what the fuck are you doing in my locker room? And it was Bruiser Brody. Oh, wow. And then... uh Somebody else like, well, before this gets out of hand, you know, because like, what are you doing? He's like, I want to be a wrestler. So like, well, if you're serious, you know, give me a call. And he left and there was no confrontation. But I would love to see a shoot fight between Vader and Bruiser Brody before Vader even gets in the business. Jesus. Bruiser Brody, of course, another legendary tough man, a savage, was uh, just brutally murdered by another wrestler, probably the sleaziest and worst scandal in the history of wrestling. Yeah, he's like stabbed to death in a locker room, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and everybody knew and nothing happened. The guy completely got away with it. This was uh, down there in Puerto Rico. Mm. It was in the shower. Um, so anyway, Vader debuts. Uh, they He made a name for himself over there in Japan. Like his de- the debut of the Vader character, which was... The full name is Van Vader, often called Big Van Vader. In the WWF, it was just Vader. But uh, some variation on that. It was all the same character. That character debuted for New Japan. And like in his first match ever, uh, I believe won the IWGP title and beat Antonio Inoki. Which, I mean, if you don't know the context, you don't really understand how huge of a deal that is. Inoki had not lost in probably 10 years by that point. The Enoki uh, was the founder of New Japan, and they're really they're like people say, oh, he's the Hulk Hogan of Japan. He's the Ric Flair of Japan. There really is no equivalent. There's a couple guys like that in Japan, where it's like there's nobody in America that was the same as them because they were not only like the best wrestler and the most popular wrestler, they also owned the company and were like mainstream celebrities. The point where, like, I don't know, people would throw their jacket on a puddle when they were walking down the street. They didn't have to pay for a meal, that sort of thing. Wow. And, you know, the story goes they would have to kiss the Yakuza's ass, but that was about it. And Inoki was the founder and the top of New Japan, and his counterpart in All Japan was Giant Baba. Um, There's actually only one person in history who has a pinfall over both Inoki and Baba, and that was Stan Hansen, greatest gaijin of all time. But, so that's... All that is background to show you how significant it was that Vader beats Inoki for the title in his first match ever, his debut. Here's this new guy you've never seen before. 
you know, beats the type guy. He doesn't just like beat him. He savages him, squashes him. It reminded me of like Brock Lesnar versus John Cena. And that's how you debut a monster heel, you know? And it's like, it's good. You know, he had the chops to back it up afterwards, but that's how he developed that stiff style. You know, in Japan, they told him, we want you to hit people as hard as you can. We want you to fuck people up. Like we want it to look real. Don't put anybody in the hospital. Don't make anybody to where they're going to have to miss the next show. But other than that, do whatever you want. Wow. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. that's the kind of, the kind of style they work over there. Vader was one of the best at that. Uh, Like one of his greatest opponents, Cactus Jack, of course, Mick Foley, they worked together primarily in WCW. I remember Mick in his book saying that he knew people to quit the company rather than wrestle Vader. They would see their name against him on the match card and they would just quit the company and never come back. Uh, Like jobbers, you know. Yeah. Because it'd be a squash match. They're like, I'm not going through that. Forget it. (laughs) You can keep the exposure. Wow. Uh, Just a, a great striker and but like everybody says oh undertaker is the best striker in the history of the wwf vader like there was no equivalent because vader was kind of a shell by the time he's in the wwf but i think he has probably some of the best punches in wrestling both shoot and kayfabe but it looks looks devastating um yeah brutal savage dominant champion like if you watch wwe that's the only version you're familiar with you have no idea you know vader is a big fat piece of shit (laughs) Uh, with a gimp mask on. Yeah. Uh, what I'm referring to is he actually, he called himself a big fat piece of shit. Like that was the last time Vader appeared on WWF television (laughs) in a mask versus mask match against Kane. And he loses and says, maybe Vader times over. I'm just a big fat piece of shit. And he leaves. And that's, that's it. Not to mention mask versus mask. Not only is Vader's mask where you could see his face anyway. This is a half mask. Yeah. He used to take it off voluntarily, like all the time. In any intense match, he would just take his own mask off. He took it off in every match I showed you. Yeah, he did. So, but yeah, that wasn't a WWF. So, you know, that that doesn't count. That's that's basically Vince's take on it. Okay. And he had some okay matches in WWF. In my opinion, his best one was probably versus Undertaker at Canadian Stampede. But... To really appreciate his career, you need to watch his WCW matches. You need to watch his Japanese matches. Um, I guess we'll, we'll start by talking about that Stan Hansen match because that's probably the most famous match he was ever in. Stan Hansen, of course, as I said, the, the biggest gaijin in the history of Japan. Gaijin means foreigner. Uh, it's not only a wrestling term, but it is a wrestling term. And there are like certain... They're usually American, but foreign wrestlers who become like really, really big stars in Japan. And Hanson was the biggest. You know, he's from Texas. He's a cowboy. He was for real. And that was his character. And uh, the same stiff. Don't put him in the hospital. But other than that, do whatever you want. Stan Hanson was broken in by the Funks. Dory, Dory Sr. actually was still alive back then. And Dory Jr. and Terry. And he said, like, back then, it was no no training at all. Now wrestling school is a big thing, but then it's just, you know, you know learn on the job. And uh, went to West Texas State, which showed a Bruiser Brody, by the way. I can't remember if they were there at the same time, but there were, like, three or four wrestlers who all, who all went there. Hmm. Another good thing about Hanson is he's, he says he, he was never a fan. He didn't love the business. He was in it to make money, which I think is good. If you're not a mark for yourself, it, it helps your helps your career. Am I crazy or are 
some of the biggest wrestlers of all time just not fans? It's just like they're in it for a paycheck. Yeah, it's well, there are some significant ones like Hanson and and Brock Lesnar, but isn't Goldberg the same way? Or yeah, Goldberg is that uh, the objection there would be questioning whether Goldberg is a a good wrestler. He certainly drew well, a lot of money. That's true. Yeah. So. Yeah, but when you think about like. Well, okay, Hulk Hogan, yeah, Hulk Hogan loves the business. Steve Austin, Austin loves the shit out of the business. Rock, third generation, he obviously loves the business. So it's like, yeah, there's kind of some of both. But there are certainly notable exceptions. Yeah. Um, so Hanson and Vader had worked a little bit together before in the States in the AWA. Um, but yeah, they were going to have a, a match in Japan. Big old stiff match, as uh, Hanson called it, and... Like Vader's nose gets broken before the match even starts, which is how you know this is going to be a good one because he comes out with this giant Mastodon helmet on. Uh, I think he's fucking sick. Yeah, people like that helmet. He he did not like it. He did not enjoy wearing it. But uh, you know they're well, like, super well, un, it's super ungainly. I, yeah, I, I can sympathize. But like, fuck, man, you wear it all the time. Yeah. So he came out with that mask, and and Hanson hit him in the face, and the mask like broke his nose before it even started and then they just wailed on each other and you know that's how Hanson described his career as like 95% shoot because it's like okay they know who's gonna win but you were gonna go out here and it's like I'm gonna pound the shit out of you because I'm trying to make you like react so we can see that I beat you down like cringe or whatever so like that guy is tough I'm trying to do that to you for real the other guy's like oh no the hell you're not I'm gonna do that to you and so it's basically just a, you know, alpha males, a clashing of the, the bulls thing. So they go out there and do that. And, and Hanson and Vader just pound the shit out of each other. And eventually Vader's eye comes out. It's, uh, that's so gnarly. Yeah. So Hanson got his thumb in his eye and it popped like all the way out, but he was still wearing a mask at the time. Not the half mask like I was talking about, but a full head mask, uh, at the time. And he was able to like push it back in and you can see it's kind of covered over with the lid, but it's messed up. And then eventually he just, he takes the mask off, which I said, he took his own mask off all the time. That was the first time he'd ever done it. He was legitimately a, a mask wrestler before that, at least under that character, he had wrestled unmasked under other characters, but he was really taking it off cause he was worried about his eyes. So it's like all the more dramatic, you know? So you watched that match. So what what did, what did you think of that match? Because I'd seen that one before, and it's like, yeah, it's no joke. But what well, do you think? Well, you gave me sort of a heads up. You said that Stan Hansen was he couldn't really see very well. Yeah, that is true. That's another thing I should say about him. He had a reputation for being terrifying to work with, not only because he was stiff, but because he really couldn't see. Like if you ask him, he'll tell you you can't see beyond like you put his hand in front of his face. Like past that, he can't see. Yeah. So he told me that before I watched the match. So I'm like, okay, thanks for the heads up. And then, yeah, he gets his nose broken. The match starts. Uh, Vader gets his eye popped out on accident, I guess. But everyone, guess what, thought it was real? or Well, some some, it was some people thought that Hanson did that for real just because he had a reputation as a brawler. But I don't necessarily have any reason to believe that. They're friends, or they were friends. Yeah, they're yeah, that's true. They were friends until, until Vader died. Yeah. Not close, but, you know, friendly. Yeah. And other than that, it was just a really good match. It was a really good, stiff match. Yeah. It was fun to watch. Yeah. I, uh, after 
I watched that one. I, I watched one with Hanson and Andre the Giant. I love that one too. I think I sent that one along as well. You did. That was good. And it's like. Everyone just looks like a child compared to that man. Yeah. Like and it's big, like. But the biggest wrestler who is not Andre the Giant next to Andre the Giant. It's like a, it's like a man fighting a child. Yeah. And like a lot of people like that match. Like that match, Hanson and Andre has been voted one of the best matches in the history of Japan by Japanese fans, not by Dave Meltzer, something like Nine that. Nine stars. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and it's true. It's just a great, like stiff match. Like I, you watch that match. I'm like, yes, this is what I like wrestling for. Not this other stuff that you guys all seem to like so much. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, great, great shit. So uh, we don't want to get too far away from Vader. Now we're talking about Stan, Stan Hansen, but anyway, so yeah, I sent you that one. I sent you a, a match with Cactus Jack, a match with Sting. Right. Because I would say those are probably his most notorious opponents would be Hanson, Cactus, and Sting. So. Yeah, the Sting one was really fun. That reminded yeah. me most of the WWF stuff I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just a really fun, entertaining match to watch. The Cactus Jack one was crazy. Like yeah. The blood eventually when the guy it was pretty crazy. You, you can, because you warned me, you're like, you're going to hear his nose breaking. And you absolutely do hear his nose breaking. Yeah. I think you can hear it in the commentary. He's like, oh, oh wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Because that's, that's a match, which you can look it up on YouTube. It's from WCW Saturday Night, I think. And Mick talks about that in his book. And he had wanted to get some color, means blood, in the match with no blade. So he asked Vader to bust him open. Which he was trying to bust his eyebrow open, which is a standard thing. Wrestlers do that. But he's just having some trouble. And um, just, you know, like swinging a mace in your face over and over again. Yeah. I think Mick was like, he's, he's trying to communicate, okay, it's not working. Let's do something else. But he wasn't able to get that message across. Because it's like I said, Vader's the best striker, kayfabe and shoot. Because like his punches always look pretty much that bad. But like he's not just busting somebody's face open the way he did in like that. Like he, he got some pretty good shots in on Sting, but I'm pretty sure he pulled all those shots, you know? Yeah. Nothing looked too brutal, I guess. Yeah. But now with Cactus, he just, he, he let it all, let it all hang out. It's kind of like if you're going to ask somebody to punch you in the face, Vader's the wrong guy to do it. <laughs> it's like when that guy was asked New Jack to blade him. I'm like, you asked the wrong guy. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Rest in peace, Vader. Um, I guess maybe that's the message. If you like Vader, if you remember Vader, you really have not seen him at his best if you don't watch the Japanese stuff and the WCW stuff. Uh, It really was kind of sad what happened to Vader in WWF. But there's quite a few guys like that who had a great career, and then by the time they end up there, they're old and broken down. Sometimes they're just booked wrong, which, and sometimes it's both. Sometimes they're old and broken down and they're booked wrong. But it's rare anymore that somebody's had like a great career somewhere else for a long time. And then they come there and they have a great career there. AJ Styles has done it. He's probably the most recent one I can think of, but yeah, like Steve Williams is another example of that. Somebody that was, do you remember him at all? Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Uh, I remember the name. I'm sure I've seen at least one of his matches. Yeah. He, he was a big thick set guy with a beard Good, like they put him with Jim Ross because, like, I, I think they were both from Oklahoma, or and Jim Ross was just like he was a big champion of the guy behind the scenes, so they put him together on screen. That was during 
Ross's heel turn, which was not very well received. And then uh, they that was also during the Brawl for All. People said, do you remember that? Brawl for All was a shoot boxing tournament. I don't remember this. Yeah. Uh, it's it's widely considered like one of the stupidest things that has ever been done in wrestling. It's it like, okay, David cringe. Arquette is world champion, Brawl for All. It's like, it's that level of a mistake. But um, so what it was is they, they took, uh, they, it was a shoot boxing tournament. So they said, um, all right, we're going to have like real shoot fights on wrestling. And it's like, and wrestlers could volunteer. It was, uh, it was on a volunteer basis and the prize money was supposedly real or the prize money was real, but that was the, that was the incentive. And it's like, if, if people want to watch real fights, there's another show where they have that. And, uh, it's like, you're going to put that on your show. How do you even sell that? Like during the course of the show, like, okay, everybody let's watch some real fights because what we were just watching, that was all bullshit. And what's going to come on after this? Well, that's all bullshit. <laughs> like, how, how do you even spin it within the context of the show? I don't know. I don't think they were thinking that far ahead. Yeah. And a lot of people said that, uh, a lot of people thought and said that the whole concept of the Brawl for All was just to get Steve Williams over because everybody thought he was going to win because he really was like this badass athlete, like, played like every sport in college could just like run through a brick wall and was just like one of those guys. And they're like, yeah, he's going to come in and just destroy everybody else. They're going to be like, wow, this guy is legit. That didn't happen because you know, it's, it's a shoot fight, man. Fake everything that you can. That's rule number one in wrestling. Cause it's like, yeah, Steve Williams was the toughest guy in that fight, but he didn't win. Uh, he tore his hamstring and it, it, it like never recovered. Like his career never recovered. Because you got your ass kicked for real by Bart Gunn, by the Marty Jannetty of the smoking guns. Yeah. And that was another mistake. They didn't then shoot, put a rocket to Bart Gunn's ass, shoot him to the moon. They didn't do that either. So it's, I, I don't know, man. How did I get started? Oh, yeah. Steve Williams. By the time. So if you remember seeing that, seeing that travesty, that disgrace. No, that guy was awesome. That guy had tons of great matches. They were just all in Japan. <laughs> so there's yeah. actually quite a few guys like that. Yeah, good to know. And even the guys who you have seen are usually better in Japan. Like if you watch a Hulk Hogan match in Japan, he actually does wrestling moves because they, they won't put up with what he does over here over there. The crowd will shit on it. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like just the rules in Japan just give you more leeway. Mm-hmm. I mean, pro wrestling is a big industry in Japan. It's not just like one thing. There's New Japan is the the primary company now. All Japan still exists. They haven't really been significant since the 90s. But in the 90s, I think All Japan in the 90s was the peak of wrestling. And they also have lots of high-flying promotions. They have promotions that are jokes. You fight blow-up dolls, you fight little kids, stuff like that. Yeah, All the stuff Kenny Omega did. And they have like deathmatch hardcore promotions too. They have all of that. That's Big Japan? Big Japan is one of them, but it's not the only one. Mm. There's uh, more than that. And that's the thing. Like Big Japan, they do the they do deathmatch stuff, but it's a crossover fed too. They can have like technical matches. Like uh, CZW in the States was like that. Um, but yeah, wrestling's a, a big industry in Japan. Um, a lot of Japanese wrestling fans, particularly in America, are very elitist. They will talk shit about American wrestling. They'll talk shit about American wrestling fans. So 
tread lightly, I guess. Enjoy Japanese wrestling, but the fans might turn you off. But I, I hate all wrestling fans anyway, so who cares? It's, it's no different. Yeah. But yeah, you'll get uh, elitism. You'll get snobbishness. You'll get seven star matches. <laughs> you want to talk about that? Yeah, we'll mention that. So we, we talked about Kazuchika Okada and Kenny Omega on the show before. They had a six star match. And then they had a match after that, which he said was, it's better. And he rated, his official rating was like six and three quarter stars. And now they've had their fourth match, seven stars. And at this point, I'm like, okay, just stop listening to Dave Meltzer. He obviously, and that, that has no bearing on that match. Because personally, like a lot of people are saying that's the best match they've ever seen. I think Miguel said that's the best match he's ever seen. And I don't think it is for a couple of reasons. It's a great match. If he'd given it five stars, I'd have said, fine, deserves five stars. But he didn't give it five stars. He gave it fucking seven. Seven out of five. You, you've, you've, you've broken your scale. Maybe I, th- I heard uh, Raven on a podcast be like, hey, maybe his dad was the guy that came up with 110%. Because, <laughs> I mean, you understand what I'm saying here. The, 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 the gimmick isn't that match isn't that good. It doesn't deserve that. It's you're rating seven stars out of five. Your opinion doesn't mean anything anymore. That's uh, it's common sense to me. There was a Simpsons about that. Yeah. I'm going to give this my lowest rating ever. Seven thumbs up. If a match is perfect then that's as good as it can be like i can like i was talking to miguel about this like well i don't think okada omega 4 was as good as stan hansen versus andre the giant i thought that match was better than this match uh dave Meltzer actually gave a six-star match before i forgot about this he gave one way back in 1994 and it's like well okay that's he didn't do it again for you know a long time but now he's given three matches that are over five stars within the past year. So it's like, well, you've lost it. And if I had been active in the online wrestling community in 1994, I probably would have objected to him giving that match six stars. Because when I watched that match, I was disappointed. That was Masao versus Kawada 6394. That's the, the match that people just refer to by the date, which for a long time, everybody said that's the greatest match of all time. And now people will probably say that about Okada Omega. And it's like, people will be disappointed. Like, it's good. It's not that good. And wrestling matches aren't like that anyway. Wrestling matches are like movies. So Vince McMahon said in Beyond the Mat, we make movies. He took a drink of water. But, um, like, nobody's going to sit there and say, okay, Vertigo is better than Citizen Kane. Like, you can have that opinion. Nobody's going to sit there and argue about that unless you're an idiot. This movie deserves six stars. This one is five and three quarters. What the fuck are you talking about? Now, star ratings for movies, just like for wrestling, are useful if you're a professional critic because the fan can at least get to know the critic. So it's like you don't have to agree with every rating they get, but at least if you have some gauge of their taste, then you can say, okay, well, they think this, but I might think this, you know? Right. Like Roger Ebert was my favorite movie critic. He also used the star system. I don't agree with every star rating he did. He gave... uh, the Godfather 2, three and a half stars. That deserved four. Uh, he gave the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Tobey Maguire movie Brothers four stars. Like two and a half. But the point is, that doesn't invalidate Roger Ebert as a critic. If Roger Ebert had come out and said, okay, The Hunger Games, eight stars. 
then I'd be like, oh, it's not that Hunger Games is a bad movie, but I'd be like, I think I need to find a new movie critic, right? Yeah. If you decide to just say, you know, I'm just going to abandon my entire system of rating things mm-hmm. and go above and beyond anything I would normally rate something just because I like this movie so much. It's, it's, it seems like you're, I don't know. All I can say is it's too much. It's the only way to describe it. It's that's that's what I'm saying. If this match had been five stars, all of these matches should be five stars. The other thing is that you can't objectively judge art against other art. And it's like wrestling matches are not athletic competitions. Are, are you objectively going to have an argument about which painting is better than another painting? They're, they're all good. Yeah, right? right. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's time to just, for him to just adjust his rating system. Maybe it should be out of 10. Not, well, not stars, but like, you know, however many out of 10. How about out of 100? I mean, I don't know. a five-star scale is actually a 10-star scale if you include half stars. Okay. But that's what I'm saying. Why not do 100? Why not say this match is 99, this one's 97, this one's 84? You could get much, much more precise. Yeah. But the point should be just don't, maybe don't rank anything. Like, like when fans get into it, that's one thing. Like Dave Meltzer is a professional critic. I get it. He can give star ratings for the reason that I explained. But when it's not reliable anymore, then you don't listen to him. So is he now going to go back and say, okay, these this match is better than every match that I gave five stars to? So... This Okada Omega match is two stars better than than Flair Steamboat. Is that what you're saying? Because I don't think that's what he's saying. He's just, I'm really excited about this match, and I really want people to listen to what I'm saying. So I want to get attention by saying something I never said before. Yeah. And he's obviously a mark for New Japan. A lot of people are. Miguel is. It's okay. Yeah. I'm a mark for 90s All Japan, but it was a long time ago, so not that many people talk about it anymore. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, say these matches are all good. Say, start talking about favorite instead of best. If he wants to single a particular match out, be like, you know, staff pick, house favorite, something like that. But once it gets, decide what your standard is for perfect, and that's it. You can't, you can't go past that. And if you want to go past that, you need a new scale. At least that's, that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. I mean, fans of anything do this kind of stuff all the time with, well, music fans, for example, they often confuse best with favorite Mm -hmm. and it annoys the hell out of me yeah it's like a lot of people's best record might not be your favorite yeah yeah your favorite record it's probably not their best record i i said that once before i remember i was having a conversation about metallica i said the song one was their best song but it wasn't my favorite song and the person like couldn't comprehend the difference to the point that they acted like i was an idiot for saying that Mm. but yes it's a valid point your favorite and the best, not different things. Or yeah. they are different things, right. not the same thing. Right. So, yeah. you're like, you brought up Electric Wizard before. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, Dope Throne, my favorite record. It is not their best record. Technically, uh, Come My Fanatics is their best record. And even that is a subjective opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody could just as easily say, Dope Throne is a better record, but I like Come My Fanatics better. Yeah. So... And I mean, with this wrestling thing, to to say that Okada and Omega was the best, you you have to like a very specific style of wrestling. You have to like matches that are an hour long. You have to. There's a lot of stalling. I'm like, it seems like that the idea is now long equals good. Like you can't have a four star match that's less than a half hour anymore. So it's like stalling. There's no nice way to put it. I mean, you could have this same match in like half the time. Um. 
And there are other criticisms I could make of that match, which this is very nitpicky. It's very nitpicky. But if you're going to say this is seven stars, the best match ever, like, well, it doesn't look perfect to me because I don't know. Okada went for the tombstone about four times too many and they botched the finish. Like I told that to Miguel and he's like, no, that was planned, but looks like a botch to me. And, um, I don't know. I, I just, I, I hardly see how you can call a match with a botched finish the greatest match of all time. To me, that ruins the entire match. It really does. I wish it didn't, but it does. Mm-hmm. Um, like this match, for that reason, will always be my least favorite of the Okada Omega series. They covered it up enough, well enough, that it's like, okay, that's plausible as being planned. But I just don't think it was. And... Like the the worst example was the main event of WrestleMania 19 was Brock Lesnar versus Kurt Angle. Now that's a great match. Those are two of my favorite wrestlers of all time. So, you know, I would be inclined to like that match. I don't, I never think about it. I never watch it. Prefer not to think about it because that's the match where Brock botched the shooting star press. And to me, that ruins the whole match because that was the finish. I, I, I get it. I can forgive a botch. It even makes sense in kayfabe. It doesn't ruin a match in any other point in the match. Unless it's the finish. And then, I'm sorry, but you ruined the whole match for me. I wish it wasn't true, but it is true. Yeah. So that was kind of my take on uh, on that match. But it's like, it, it was a good match. I was looking forward to it, and I enjoyed it. I don't want to be in the position to talk down about it, but that's what happens when you present it as being so much better than it is, you know? Yeah. You watched one Okada Omega match. like I think it was the first one. No, second one. Yeah. The, it was the original six-star match. Was the first one? I, I think the six-star match was their, the second match in their series, if I remember correctly. Okay, so yeah, so, yeah, I was right. Um, well, what did you think of it? It was phenomenal. I was very entertained. It was like, these guys are very good at pro wrestling. Yeah. Did you like it enough that you would want to watch their other matches? Uh, sure. So you might want to watch this seven-star match. It's because everybody says this one's better than that one. Well, I would be curious to see your take on it as a non-fan. Well, I mean, what I would probably do is watch all of the matches mm-hmm. if they're all available to be watched. And Yeah, I think they're all in daily motion. Okay. And just basically pick out how they're all different. Like, how, how are four perfect matches different? Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing is when guys are having series of matches, I'm like, how is this one better than that one? And, like, one of my favorite matches probably... Well, it's either it's my favorite match of all time. There's two that I have a hard time picking between. One is Austin versus Dude Love at Over the Edge. And the other one is Austin versus Bret Hart at WrestleMania 13. Now, that one is one that everybody likes. But that was actually the second match in their series because they had wrestled a couple months before that at Survivor Series. And in my opinion, that match was just as good. So really, when you think about Hart Austin... You, you don't have to say this match versus that match. It's the two matches together. And maybe that's to, to sit there and, and nitpick about this match or that match or how many stars. Just say, hey, Okada and Omega, that was a great feud. Maybe just leave it there. <laughs> Probably more satisfying. Yeah. Um, so what, what's the record of those matches? Like who's won the most, I guess? Because it's four. So. Uh, well, Okada won three and Omega just won this last one. Okada was the champion, and Kenny Omega just won the title in this last match Mm. for the first time. Okada was a dominant champion. He'd been champion since 2016. So, and, you know, Kenny had had several title shots, and he was finally able to do it. 
so it's pretty significant that he was able to win and he is now the world champion of New Japan. So I said years ago, I'm like, Kenny Omega is going to be one of the biggest stars in wrestling because he's good and his character is like would appeal to people. Uh, so, you know, barring injury and as long as he deals with integrity business wise, you know, to the moon and, um, you know, Okada as well. The Japanese wrestlers tend to stay in Japan. Kenny is a uh, Canadian, so it wouldn't surprise me to see him over here at some point. Like these people, they may have, you know, creative goals in wrestling that they want to achieve. They want to have these great matches. But, you know, in my opinion, WWE is where everybody wants to go. Like all, everybody in the business has always said that. Like no matter what you say, no matter what you think, no matter where you work, that's the show. That's the major leagues. I would almost like to see Okada and Omega as a tag team in WWE. Ah, that'd be something else. Yeah. Uh, okay. Omega actually has a tag team partner. He has Kota Ibushi. Ibushi is fucking amazing. Hmm. You would love that tag team. Okay. The Golden Lovers, which <laughs> at first I thought they, that they were supposed to be gay and they, they kissed each other at least once, but I'm like, nah, I guess I asked Miguel. He's like, no, no, it's not gay. They're just good friends. Like, okay. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So it's like, I, I, I am actually, you know, I feel, um, high hopes about the future because of the competition between the two WWE and, and new Japan. Cause new Japan and ring of honor, which is the, uh, you know, the, the smarks, that's the indie promotion they like where they do that. Uh, you know, they treat it like it's real. The ring of honor is the one they like, and they have a working pro- They have a working arrangement with new Japan. They do shows together. New Japan is actually running a show not too far from here. Hmm. I, I, the, yeah, it's in like Stockton or something like that. But um, front row seats are three hundred dollars. I'm like, I'm not going to pay no three hundred dollars, and I, I, I wouldn't want to sit anywhere else. I'm like, I, I get it. You know, it's it costs a lot of money to run a tour in a another continent. You know, so it's like New Japan has they've done it before, but they don't really run North American tours. But if it takes off and they start doing it, I would love to go. You know, but not for no three hundred dollars. Forget it. Yeah, I know. Um. But New Japan and Ring of Honor, I just heard about this. They tried to book a show in Madison Square Garden and WWE blocked them. And some people were upset by that because they're like, oh, fuck WWE trying to monopolize the wrestling industry. I'm like, that's good. Number one, like I get it. You you, you try to book a show in Madison Square Garden for WrestleMania weekend, which I believe is what it, what it was. It was obviously a thumb in WWE's eye. It was because that's that's their their home stadium. It always has been. To the point that they will do big anniversary shows in that building and take a loss because it's not big enough to hold the kind of crowd they can draw. But it's their it's their home turf. So that's obviously why you were doing it. And WWE, I'm, I'm like, good, let them protect their brand. I want to see these companies get mean. I want to see animosity between the two of them. I want talent raids, just like it was back in the Monday Night Wars, because that's where we got, you know, the, the pinnacle of wrestling it was competition. I'm like, bring that back. So what I heard that we're going to see a talent raid from WWE on New Japan pretty soon. It won't be any top guys, I'm sure, but some of the lower level guys. And then we'll see, you know, where it goes from there. Yeah. But I would love to see a new Monday Night Wars. You know, it doesn't have to be on Monday night, but, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. This is the free market at work. Right. And it won't be Vince. It'll be Triple H, which will be all the more interesting. The booker of New Japan is uh, Jado. Who uh, Jado and Gato were uh, like the goofiest tag team. Back, I, 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 they were from Japan, but I remember seeing them in uh, in WCW. 
And when I heard that, like, he was the booker of this company that everybody loves, I'm like, really, Jado? Who knew he had it in him? It'd be like, you know, learning like Scotty Too Hottie was the booker of some company or something like that, because it was a goofy tag team. They had a funny T-shirt, though, that said it had their picture and it said, fuck you. We are Jado and Gato. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I admire the directness. <sighs> so, yeah, I'll um, send that link along to you then and you can we'll check in whenever you watch it. I this was from the show that it was on was Dominion. And I've been meaning to watch the rest of Dominion, and I haven't gotten to it. So if I ever do, we'll check in on that, too. Yeah. Supposedly, the whole show was really good. Cool. Chris Jericho was there again. I guess he would be like an independent contractor now, that he regularly appears on both WWE and New Japan. Good for him. Yeah. So other wrestling news. The other big wrestling story from the weekend of Okada and Omega was CM Punk getting his second UFC fight got destroyed again so what, what did you think about that well i watched both matches as well as the run-up to the first match mm-hmm. and yeah he just got i mean he trained really hard for this and it didn't matter at all he got annihilated in two minutes in the first match and the second match was a little more interesting it was like 15 minutes but yeah immediately it was just you know you get into like first of all he gets speared gets driven to the ground Brought over to the to the fence, and then it's just ground and pound for the entire time. Yeah, what what I heard the second fight like that guy could have ended at any time, and he was just dragging it out. Oh, sorry, I was confusing with the first match. Sorry, forgive me. Yeah, um, that was the first match where it was just like this is no contest. Yeah, the second match there was some stand up work, and yeah, just dragging it out. At one point, I think Joe Rogan said he like tickled him. Yeah, to the point that like after this event, like Dana White fired both of them. Like, it wasn't just, like, CM Punk, he's like, yeah, he's got a lot of heart. The other guy's like, that guy's a fucking idiot. Yeah. Dana I don't know White, what he did before, but he better go back. Yeah, Dana White called Mike Jackson a fucking idiot. So you'll never work in UFC again. Yeah. So. And I guess that's, like, for, for not ending the fight when he could have? Yeah, I guess. Like, turning it into a joke. That's pretty brutal. And it's like, okay, I, I understand that UFC is a, like, MMA, it's it's a professional sport. I get it. And, you know, you got to train for that your whole life. You got to be, if you want to be to the top, you got to realize that that's your goal, like when you're in kindergarten. And, you know, I remember when MMA started, or at least when UFC started, when I was a kid. And, you know, it's way different now. I know it's not Hoist Gracie fighting the guy with one boxing glove anymore. Yeah. It's, It's way different. So, and we've talked before about how UFC and WWE are the same industry with the only exception being the, the fights are real in UFC. And so it's like, I understand the objection to putting CM Punk in this card because he's famous from WWE, but they're like, well, he's not like a world-class fighter. So he doesn't deserve to be in this card. And obviously that's true. I didn't have a problem with that. Cause it's like, I don't, I mean, what do I care about the integrity of UFC number one and number two, I know it's an entertainment industry just like anything else. That's why, by the way, that's why he fought. That's why he was booked as CM Punk and not Phil Brooks. This is a guy who uses his real name a lot. This isn't the kind of guy who goes by his wrestling name in his personal life. He and everybody that he knows calls him Phil. So the fact that he's using his wrestling name in UFC kind of tells you what you need to know. Yeah, at a certain point in, I think it was the second, no, 
end of the second round of the second match, the crowd started chanting CM Punk. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this is a joke. Like, yeah, and it's like, where was what city was it in? Did you catch that? I didn't catch what city. Because I, I know the first first one was I think Pittsburgh. Because mm. it would be understandable only if it was in Chicago. For some reason, they just love that motherfucker in his hometown. They will chant for CM Punk no matter what. Yeah, chant for CM Punk at a fucking Bulls game. <laughs> but um, so it's like I get that he was put in a position that he didn't deserve because he's famous. But then after the second fight. People who are into it, they're like, even then, it's like, he should be better than that. They're like, even granting that, he's he's worse than he should be. Like, you should be able to take, like, somebody off the street and give him the China training that he had, and they should be able to hang better than he did. So there's something weird here. Yeah. Um, I remember Joe Rogan bringing something up just along those lines. The lack of awareness is weird. The lack of physical awareness, special awareness. Like, it's like he has never wrestled in his life. Mm-hmm. but like worse. Like he just has no aptitude for it. Right. See, CM Punk, as I've said for so long, is the biggest mark. Like he's the mark of marks. He believes he's fucking Harley Race and all this shit. And it's like, because he grew up like hearing about all these old like champions like Terry fucking fucking Stan Hansen and Harley Race. Who could really beat you up in a bar fight? Put Stan Hansen in UFC. He'd probably do fine. Be like Tank Abbott. Those are tough motherfuckers. Right. That's not who you are, CM Punk. That's not who you are. Yeah. The industry you grew up watching is a different industry. You're a punk. You didn't even... Re- no no pun intended. Yeah, that's fine. You didn't even wrestle in high school. That's why like, that's why Brock Lesnar was the champion, because wrestling, amateur wrestling, it's a martial arts, and he has been doing that his whole life. Yeah. You, you didn't do that. You're not a combat athlete at all. You were trained to be a pro wrestler. Yeah. Also, just as a quick aside, his physicality, his musculature was terrible like for the first first match and he, it was even worse the second match because he had to drop weight i guess for both of them yeah but it's like you, you're not even going to tone up he had the the physicality of like a systems analyst yeah man just a fucking you know guy off the street with a lot of tattoos it's like yeah. what the fuck i have a better body than you yeah he's not even like a world-class athlete. And I'm not saying like, I'm not talking shit about wrestling. Obviously there are wrestlers who are world-class athletes, but you don't have to be a world-class athlete to be a wrestler. And he was one of the guys who wasn't, Yeah, but he was probably, like I said, he's a Mark. He probably bought into all this, like, Oh, wrestlers are the, the greatest people in the world. And he's like, well, I'm a champion wrestler. So obviously I can do this stuff too. Yeah. There you go. Like there were a series of, of training videos before the first match, like I said, and there's some drama to it. There's an underdog feeling to the whole thing, mm-hmm. but there's a kind of undercurrent with that of like, this guy's, we're not even at like a, a neutral kind of baseline where it's like, you know, somebody off the street or whatever. And we're training him to be an MMA wrestler. This guy is, it seems like he's like, aggre- like he's aggressively terrible. He's trying to throw matches or something. Yeah. So it's not even that he has potential. It's that you can't do anything with him. Yeah. Which seems weird to say. It, it's a weird circumstance. Um, like Brock Lesnar, of course, everybody knows. Uh, there's plenty of Japanese wrestlers who have fought in MMA with varying degrees of success. Uh, Ronda Rousey went the other way. She's apparently doing really well in WWE. I've heard nothing but good things about her matches. Great. Um, but yeah, for some reason, Seapug just didn't, didn't have it in him. And it's like, 
So as I was, I was saying to you, like, well, why did he want to do this? Is he passionate about martial arts? Is he passionate about fighting? Like, he can still do that. You just, you won't be able to do it at UFC. Maybe go to, like, he's still famous enough. I'm pretty sure, like, Bellator or somebody like that would hire him just based on his name. And he'd probably get smashed again. But it's like, if you keep going down the ladder, eventually you'll find somebody you can beat. It's your local gym. And just yeah. train there. Is that what it's about? Well, I think Mike Jackson, like, okay, the first guy... With Mickey Gall, mm-hmm. it's this young kid. It's really good. He called him out. Like, I want to fight CM Punk, which fine, whatever. Get your ass handed to you. I mean, CM Punk. I mean, uh, have fun with that. Mike Jackson was fed to him, and it still didn't work. Yeah, I think in both of those fights, they were trying to find somebody. the The history of that was Mike Jackson and Mickey Gall had a fight to see who was going to have the right to beat CM Punk, basically. And then the loser of that match got to fight him, and he beat him too. Yeah. So, I I, I just I, I would have a, I would I have trouble like understanding his motivation for doing it. So I don't know like what his next move is. But if he really wants to fight, he'll have to scale his ambitions way way down because you started like at the very top, and you obviously weren't qualified to do that. Yeah, he got beat by his sparring partners. Yeah, like man. he had test matches or whatever, and he kept getting his ass handed to him. So, yeah. Or it reminds me of like when Michael Jordan wanted to play baseball, and it's like he was passionate about that. He loved baseball. I knew that about Michael Jordan. He just he wasn't very good, and he event like I don't know. I don't want to speak out of turn, but the story I always heard was that he eventually went back to basketball because of his gambling debts. But if he had just you know wanted to play baseball, he would have been a minor league baseball player. Yeah. So what? That's that's fine. And if CM Punk wants to be a guy who fights at his local gym and, you know, the fights are on YouTube, he shouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah. But is that really what he wants? You get that with people. It's like, is your dream to play in the NBA or is your dream to play basketball? Because you could just play at the park every week and nobody stops. Yeah, you play down the street. Yeah. I, don't know. I think he gets off on being an underdog or something. He's got a, he's got a lot of attitude problems. Mm. His... His whole perspective on life is all screwed up. But that's just my opinion. A lot of people really like him. And apparently he's very likable one-to-one. Everybody who meets him seems to like him. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you watch all this stuff, whether it's the matches themselves or any of the commentary behind it, you listen to any of it, what you hear a lot is, this guy's got a lot of heart. When everyone's saying that, that means you're a fucking loser. Yeah. That means you have never won. He's got a lot of heart. That means you keep trying and failing. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I, I guess, I guess, yeah, it's better than getting your ass kicked and then quitting or like crying in the corner. But yeah, I mean, it's not good to give up on anything. But like, I get you what know. you mean. It's like you're, you're, you're fishing. You're scraping the bottom of the barrel for positive things to say. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. Yeah, most improved. Well, we can't even give you that one. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> he's like getting worse. Yeah. In the second match, he goes in for. I think it's called a, a guillotine or guillotine. It's just a takedown and he couldn't do it. He's like hanging off the guy, uh, you know, Mike Jackson, his, his arm sort of limply draped over the back of his neck. Yeah. Mike Jackson just drops him and it's just ground and pound. Yeah. Until the end of the match. It's like this, no, nothing you do is, is going to work. You know what fight I would love to see? I want to see CM Punk versus Joe Rogan. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's commented on that. He's like, I would beat CM Punk worse than I would fail a drug test. That's because that's the fight everybody wants. Because Joe Rogan obviously is an MMA guy, 
And he's had CM Punk in his show. And like I said, they get along when they're together. But and Joe Rogan obviously hates wrestling, I think probably from his attachment to MMA and uh, has talked shit about CM Punk. So like if you look at the comments in the video, people are like, well, he could beat you. And then eventually that filters through and he's like, no, the fuck he couldn't. Yeah. And it's like, well, I want to see. I mean, I'd, I, I don't know. I would see that. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe Rogan's kicks alone are fucking devastating. Yeah. Like that, that dude's gnarly. Like I don't care how old he is. He'll fuck you up. Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned Tank Abbott. Do you remember him? Yeah, I remember Tank Abbott. He didn't have any kind of training at all. No training. Yeah. But his, his whole thing was like, I just have to hit you one time and you'll be unconscious. And if you just avoid that hit, then you're okay. But he won several fights. He's, he's not considered like good. It's like a freak show, right? Like Butterbean. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, it's like a black street fighter, Kimbo Slice. Kimbo Slice, yeah. Same sort of dude. Yeah, the Tank Abbott era of UFC, that was when I was watching MMA years mm-hmm. and years and years ago. It's like him and Dan Sever and Ken Shamrock. Um, All became pro wrestlers. Yeah, exactly. So, And I think Tank Abbott eventually got beat by like an alternate or something, but some rando. Yeah. And that was pretty much the end of Tank Abbott's run. Yeah, I, I remember Tank Abbott from WCW. And like I, Ken Shamrock was pretty successful, but... There wasn't really like a lot of wrestling MMA crossover back then. Like Dan Severn did come to the WWF, didn't do anything. Like he made no impact, as I recall. He did uh, have great theme music. As a bit of trivia, in my opinion, it's absolutely one of the best theme songs in the history of WWF, Dan Severn, of all things. But Hmm. uh, yeah, you would like it. It sounds ominous. Okay. Um, It's like Mike Tyson's entrance music. Yeah, yeah. Now, we'll have to bring it up after the show. Okay. But, um, yeah, nobody else really really had much impact. And, like, Ken Shamrock, like, I've the story that I've always heard is that he was given easy opponents because he was a marketable star. And, you know, just rigging your bracket to get the, the outcomes you want. I mean, that's the same as just fixing a fight, right? It's pretty much the same. Yeah. And it, it actually wouldn't even surprise me if UFC, UFC fights were just fixed. Some of them anyway. Like, I don't I don't know. I don't have any reason to suspect that. But just from what I know about the world, it wouldn't surprise me if it was true. Yeah. I mean, they did it with boxing. Yeah, right? They did it with wrestling. People don't realize this, but until like the 20s, wrestling was a real sport. It was a shoot. The reason it became a work is because the champion, a guy named Ed the Strangler Lewis, was so good, nobody could beat him. That gets boring after a while. Says, I got to throw some fights, make it interesting. Um... That's actually Ken Shamrock in WWF as well. That's when people started tapping out. It's a bit of wrestling trivia for you. The tap out comes from Ken Shamrock. Before that, people would submit verbally. But if you're not used to it, you watch old matches and it'll throw you. Because like somebody will be in a submission hold. And they're sitting there like pounding the mat. It's like he's tapping out. It's like now he's just saying he's in a lot of pain. Oh, okay. Or they'll be uh, like the match will be over. You're like, what happened? It's like, well, he said he gave up. He said he gave up. That's how they do it. As you know. Montreal screw job then. Yeah. Ring the ring the bell. Ah. Good times. Yeah. All right. Anything else or about CM Punk or should we move on? Garbage fighter. It's, I'm, I'm I have a morbid curiosity to see where he's gonna end up next. Mm-hmm. Like who would book him now? I mean, guess like you said, somebody's going to, but like, well, in my opinion, yeah, like he's still very famous, so it's like. 
I, I can't name like UFC organizations. The only one I know is like, or MMA organizations. The only one I know is like UFC, which is the top. I know Bellator, which is supposedly like does novelty fights and stuff. Hmm. And then there's one called Pride. And it's like, well, I like any of them would hire him because it would pop a buy rate, right? Yeah. That had to be what I think. Yeah. The question would be like, now that he's been shown to suck at fighting, does this damage his value to pro wrestling? And in my opinion, no, it doesn't. Although it certainly didn't help. Uh, he will not come back and dominate the industry uh, the way Brock Lesnar did. I'm not saying there's a parallel there. CM Punk and Brock Lesnar are nothing alike. But I, I think he could, like, if he did come back to wrestling, I think people would still want to see him. And I think that's probably where he'll end up. If not the WWE, then he'll go to some other show. Uh, you remember, you know who Cody Rhodes is? Well, yeah, you saw Cody Rhodes. He was at that APW yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. He's somebody, he wrestled for WWE and they let him go. They're like, yeah, you don't really have anything for you. Yeah, he's like one of those. And he's, he's like one of the hottest prospects now. Cody Rhodes is a huge, hot commodity. So it's like, that's the best case scenario. Because like they, they, they didn't fire him with hostility. He's Dusty's son. His brother still works there. But that's like the best case scenario. They want him to go and come into his own and, and find who he is as a performer. And he's done that. And he and uh, the Young Bucks, which is this tag team that everybody loves, they run around with Kenny Omega too. Mm. But they're, uh, they're booking a show called All In, which is it's like a, the, an indie WrestleMania is the way it's being sold. I think it's like a 10,000 seat arena, which they already sold it out. They sold it out real quick. And it's just like pretty much every prominent American wrestler who doesn't have a contract with WWE will be on this show. Uh, it's very hot. And um, CM Punk is not on that show. They'd be stupid to put him on it now because it's like you've already generated so much interest. You've sold out the tickets in an hour. Say CM Punk's going to be on All In 2. Then you, you you can pop the buy rate you know, without even worrying about it. Now it's just like you can sell tickets for seats you don't have. But um, here's what I think is might happen because I think the show is in Chicago. CM Punk has that connection with Chicago. Best case scenario, he does a run-in. Does a run-in on the main event. Then... Everybody will be talking about it the next day and everybody will buy the next show. So if they were going to involve CM Punk, which I don't know if they're going to, that's, that would be how I would do it. And yeah, I, I strongly dislike the guy as a person. I think he just has the worst attitude, the worst ideas about a lot of things. I, I don't think he's a malicious or a mean person. I don't hate him, but I'm just like, man, you, you need to sort yourself out. Quote Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Like what, can you give me an example of his Bad attitude or? Well, he says, I pride myself on being a jerk because I'm brutally honest all the time. I fucking hate people who do say that shit. Yeah. <sighs> and like you listen to this podcast that he makes where he like he really has a very elevated opinion of himself in the wrestling industry. And it's like it's because he's a mark. Or like remember earlier when I was saying it's better not be a mark. This is what happens when you are. It's like, yeah, you're the champion. You're like the top wrestler, top drawing wrestler legit it's like i worship this industry i am now at the top of this industry therefore i am harley race rick flair i can walk in the trap rick flair Ooh, fucking nigga bitch don't care no you can't do those things it's a different industry you're at the top of the industry if you were around back then you would not have been so that's he's the biggest mark i've ever seen bigger than fucking bret hart 
Um, he thinks he can go in there and tell Vince McMahon and Triple H what's what because the fucking smarks like you. I mean, this is your boss. It doesn't matter if the guy's an asshole or not. Do you know how to relate to people? Here's the point. If you hate Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon tells you to do stuff that you don't want to do, you should be able to talk him out of it. If you are really skilled at your position, then you need to be able to sell what you want. Being abrasive, being drawing a line in the sand, being no, I'm not doing it. That's not how you get anything that you want ever. And that's why CM Punk doesn't wrestle and he hasn't for a long time. Yeah. He, he was bitching and moaning about wanting to be in the main event at WrestleMania. I mean, talk about being a mark, right? You're, you're sitting, you're upset, like getting ready to walk away from the company. Cause you're not in the main event and it's cause he thinks he's the best. He's like, I'm the champion. I'm the best. I drew so much money for this company. I want to be in the main event. <laughs> you are in the main event. There's three main events. Didn't you see the poster? He's like, that's bullshit. That's for the fans. There's one main event. It's the last match. I'm like, man, I would have fired this guy at this point. Yeah. As he says, he's walking off. Vince, he's like, all right. Goes to shake his hand. He's like, no, he goes in for a hug. I heard CM Punk talking about this. He's like, he went in for the hug, had tears in his eyes. And CM Punk reacted. This was just so bizarre. I can't believe Like, why would he have tears in his eyes? Like, he can't even understand. Because he cares about you, you idiot. He's trying to help you. I don't know. And that's that's why I say the guy's got a terrible attitude. Okay. But uh, he is a good wrestler. I've enjoyed several of his matches. 90 minutes with Chris Hero. Uh, against The Undertaker at WrestleMania. You know, Undertaker's WrestleMania streak was legendary. I think... With Shawn Michaels were probably the best matches, but CM Punk had to be right up there. He's had some really good, he had some really good ones with Triple H too, but you know, I'll give him credit. CM Punk versus Undertaker at WrestleMania 29 was a really, really good match. One of the best matches I've ever seen. Hmm. CM Punk versus John Cena at Money in the Bank 2004. A lot of people think that was the best match in WWE history. I think wow. Dave Meltzer said that. But there's more to it than that. Triple H also had some of the best matches I've ever seen. And he's in a different position in life than you. Yes. How do we get on that? Oh, yeah. So he's going to go to UFC or go to some other thing. He's got a bad attitude. But I think he'll probably end up back in wrestling. Maybe not WWE, but he'll probably go somewhere. Wouldn't surprise me if he shows up on the All In show. If he loves wrestling so fucking much, why didn't he go to Japan? That's what people used to do. That's what Chris Benoit did. Yeah. Hell, I'd love to see him in Japan. That's a good idea. Are you listening, CM Punk? Yeah. I don't know. You listen to uh, Billy Corgan doing something with NWA now again? Oh, I haven't heard lately. Uh, did, did he do something else? He bought it. I don't know. What, I remember when that happened. I just I thought there was like maybe a new story now. No. NWA, it's the NWA is is it's it's tough because it has a very long history. But it's like affiliating your wrestling promotion with the NWA helps at first. But once you get past a certain point, I think it's a hindrance. So it's like you can affiliate with the NWA, but then once you're bigger than the NWA, you kind of need to drop it, you know? Right. It's kind of like I was, I was, um, this will be a weird analogy, but I saw a video today. Do you know the, uh, the comedian Jim Jeffries? Yeah. He's a funny guy until he started talking about politics. And then I was like, man, this guy is the worst, but I saw that he had a, a video where he was like attacking Jordan Peterson, like in an, in, in an interview. I'm like, oh man, a hostile interview between Jim Jeffries and Jordan Peterson. I would love to see that just because, you know, I want to see Jim Jeffries get smacked around. Now the version 
that he posted was on his own show. So I'm like, this is will obviously be edited. I didn't even watch it. But I would love to see the unedited version of this. And then with 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 it made me reflect because like Jordan Peterson's been around for a while. You know, he's had some contentious interviews, always handled himself very well. And it's like, you know, people like want to make him look bad or whatever. But then I got to thinking, I'm like, wait a minute. Jordan Peterson probably has like 50 times the audience Jim Jeffries has or will ever have. So at this point, what difference does it even make? Why are they, why are they, why are they even attempting to do this? I probably won't even bother to watch the interview at this point. So it's like, and if I were Jordan Peterson, I would probably be like, you didn't really need to do that anymore. And he, he, I'm sure he doesn't decide his own appearances. I'm sure he has somebody to do that. Yeah, they're booked. But it's like, you've, you've reached a point in your career where it's like, you're bigger than him. So why do you need to lower yourself to that point? And that's how it is at the NWA. If you're just starting out a new promotion, it's like, oh yeah, they're affiliated with the NWA. But eventually you're like, you're bigger than the NWA. You need to leave them behind. It makes you look Bush league. Hmm. Good point. Yeah. All right. Books. Okay. Uh, so for book of the week, I guess I'll reach back into history for this one. I'm going to recommend the pale King by David Foster Wallace, David Foster Wallace, since he died in 2008 has become pretty well known. So I think a lot of people know who he is most famous for infinite jest, which is one of the most difficult novels ever written. One of those novels that a lot of people say that they like or have read or have in the shelf and have not actually read it. Uh, David Foster Wallace, the kind of author I feel very strongly about. I have strong personal connections with him. I relate to him in a lot of ways. I've read everything that he has done. I think pretty close to it anyway. And like, I didn't like it when he, when he committed suicide and became popular. Cause I'm like, man, you, you guys, don't understand him at all. Like, I hate to be like that guy, but I'm like, man, you, you just don't get it. You know nothing of my work or his work. Um, but the good thing about David Foster Wallace, and this is one of the things that made him so special, is that his work can protect itself. His work is its own bulwark. You can bullshit and say that you're into David Foster Wallace, and if you are familiar with his work, you will be able to tell that, no, that person is not. And, of course, he himself. Could know that as well. It takes effort to get into. It's the the books are are mountains. They're uphill climbs. Motherfuckers trying to ice skate uphill. The novels are certainly his most approachable stuff would be the short stories. Some of David Foster Wallace's stuff is is like thigh slappers. You know, uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again was a very funny one. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there's another novel in that book about the state fair. Supposedly fun thing I'll never do again is about a cruise. Yeah. Oh, the State Fair one is called um, Getting Away From Already Pretty Much Being Away From It All. Yeah. Uh, Consider the Lobster. These are all like tourism things. So I guess maybe that's his most approachable format. Uh, Some of his short stories are really good. Some of them are hard to know what to make of, but some of them are some of the best things I've ever read. Girl with Curious Hair was good. Yeah. The book or the actual story? Both of them. Yeah, the actual story I heard was uh, a rip on Brad Easton Ellis, which once you hear that, it's like it becomes the funniest thing ever. Yeah. It's David Foster Wallace being like, you're so stupid, you write like this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, Brad Ellis and, and David Wallace, they did have a, a feud. They uh, 
it's it's actually pretty interesting. But to get into the minutia of author feuds from the nineties, I, I I don't think so. Maybe we could watch paint dry. Yeah. But um anyway, so Infinite Jest was his last novel. It's an unfinished novel. Uh the notes and fragments of it were left when he died, he left it in a place where people would find it. So, and he didn't leave instructions, but he's like, you'll want to do something with this. So here it is. Somebody added it. Like there was no indication it's of chapters, which are some of them are seemingly unrelated. Some are not no indication of how it was all going to be put together. Um, hard to describe what it's about. The theme I guess would be maybe boredom dealing with the crushing terror of just, everyday life of just being a human being who gets up and goes to work and just how soul deadening that is. Um, a lot of the characters in this, I mean, you can make, there's the loosest skeleton of a plot I can get is like people who work for the IRS and maybe somebody who has this psychic gift for extra concentration, like an Adderall type thing and them trying to be exploited, but there's all kinds of stuff in it. There's a character named David Wallace who has some, Things in common with the author, David Wallace, but it's it's clearly not him. There is a, a portion where he says everything in this book is the literal truth. This is all 100% true, but for legal reasons, I have to say it's not true. The only fictional thing in this book is the part that says the characters in this book are fictional. Hard to read, hard to understand tome about boredom and aimlessness left unfinished on occasion of the author's suicide. It's a laugh riot. So if that sounds appealing to you, then yes, you should read it. But I will say if it doesn't, if that sounds terrible, then don't. Don't don't force yourself. But if you are in the position to approach this, I think you will get a lot out of it. I included this book on the short list of books that changed my life. It's the only David Foster Wallace book on there because I really connected with those themes about stoicism and boredom and depression and he really did kill himself, which kind of validates everything about this. There's a way in which this book would need to be left unfinished on occasion of the author's suicide in order to make it as profound as it is. I don't think that David Foster Wallace wrote an entire novel as his suicide note, but if there was ever somebody who would do that, he's the guy. Hmm. And that could make it sound very depressing, a downer, but you know, it, it doesn't have to be. Like everything, it all depends on how you take it. So I guess that's maybe, this, this This will be a hard one, but that's my summation for Book of the Week. This is a, a challenging book, book that's not easy to read, not always fun to read, although sometimes it is. Some of it is very funny. Um, by a very well-respected, very well-known author among book circles. So if you feel like you want to take it upon yourself, take the initiative to read it, I promise you that it will be worth it. It's very beneficial, and I would recommend it. Personally, I don't know. I, I, I started to say I would recommend it over any other David Foster Wallace book. That's not true. Back to Best versus Favorite again. For me, it was the most profound, and I would probably not feel as strongly about David Wallace without it, but your mileage may vary. Since it was unfinished, a lot of people might think of it as like, well, it's an addendum or, well, you don't need that one, but no, you do. It's an essential part of his work. You don't really understand his work without that one. So there you go. Book of the week. Sweet. Thanks. 
Um, my book of the week is Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich by uh, Norman Oler. Um, this was a pretty surprising book. As you can tell by the title, it's about the drugs that were dispensed within the, not only the German army, just within Germany in general, uh, under the Nazis. And it's pretty crazy just how widespread it was. Because I was aware of the Wehrmacht, the Luftwaffe, to getting little tablets to stay up on bombing runs and marches. I was not aware of just how many drugs Hitler was being given, like injections and stuff. Yeah. It's dozens and dozens and dozens a day. <laughs> not injections, but like how many chemicals and stuff. Yeah. And just, I wasn't aware of how widespread the methamphetamine use was in Germany at the time. Yeah. To the point where they were putting it in chocolates you get a box of chocolates. Each one had a dose of methamphetamine in it. Some bomb ass chocolate. Yeah, you see, it, like there's like ads for it. That she, she looks happy. I mean, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's crazy, and it ends up explaining a lot about the time, mm-hmm. why certain military operations failed, why certain decisions were made, and essentially, like by the end of it, it's like, oh, these people are getting addicted to meth, and eventually they're just suffering from meth psychosis. Yeah. Or hallucinating or just dying. So it's like, no wonder these people are so fucked up. Like, yeah, that's man. where the Blitzkrieg came from. They were all just methed out. Yeah. So there's, yeah, that like that alone is enough. Like, I recently read a book about Jim Jones, which I won't get into because I'll probably make it book of the week later. Mm. But when talking about it afterwards, because Jim Jones did a lot of amphetamines too. And people say, well, I think this about Jim Jones. I think that. I think he did it for this reason. Why did he do this? Who was he? What was behind him? Like, well, besides anything else, did a lot of methamphetamine. And that alone is enough to explain any other crazy thing you might think. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was the reason. But I'm just saying that alone is enough. That'll make anybody crazy. Yeah. Yeah. um, Besides methamphetamine, there's other drugs that kind of float around in this book in Germany at the time, particularly in the Nazi party. Um, morphine is one of them, uh, some opiates. And also it, it outlines the distinction between opiates and opioids. Mm-hmm. Opiate is actually derived from the poppy plant. It's mm-hmm. the natural derivative. Opioids are derived, f- there's synthetic. So it's yeah. like, uh, you know, morphine versus whatever, fentanyl. So it should be religion is the opioid of the masses. Shows what you know, Karl Marx. Yeah. Because I don't think you derive religion from the poppy plant. It's ridiculous. Or maybe you do. <laughs> yeah. I'm still holding out for the stoned ape theory, man. Yeah. I still think there's something there. Anyway, but yeah, it's, this was a pretty surprising book. Hmm. And yeah, it goes a long way in explaining a lot of the kind of hysteria at the time. Because, I mean, it wasn't all just fervor for the Teutonic dream, the, the Nazi dream. It was drugs. Because of course it was. Yeah. Things are rarely what you think they are yeah. at first. Yeah. You mentioned that yesterday. You were talking about that. Yeah. Jim Jones again. But mm-hmm. we, we'll do it next week. Okay. The book of the week next week. Yeah. Um. All right. So records or? Records. All right. So record of the week. The Pale Emperor by Marilyn Manson. Sex, 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 
Continuity with the Pill King there. Now, I uh, love Marilyn Manson, you know, huge fan, as I've mentioned many times on the show. We talked about on our music episode, I gave a little in-depth talk. And I think I may have even mentioned at that time that I had heard the Pale Emperor was good and I hadn't listened to it. And because I liked Manson so much, I kind of, I I didn't feel the need to rush out and listen to it after I heard it was good because it's like, I had to be in the right mood. You know, I want to receive this the right way. The time will come. Well, the the time came and it is very good. Now, Manson, I think, is most associated with the three album period where he did Antichrist Superstar, Mechanical Animals, and then Hollywood. I think just about everybody thinks that was his peak commercially and creatively. And I would agree. I also think that. Uh, certainly his peak commercially. I heard him say recently, and I never really heard him say this, but he's, he actually said Columbine was a lot of the reason his career went south. I was like, I never heard him make that connection, but I could buy that. Mm. Cause people did give him a lot of shit for that. Yeah. Him and like ICP and, and, and like Ramstein. And, uh, I'm sure it hurt all of their careers, but Ramstein wasn't really that big to begin with. Yeah, I only remember one video they used to play a lot on MTV. Yeah. That's about it. I, I had their album. It was it was all right. Sense looked. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I you know, I thought that too. And it's like Manson has released several albums since then, and I think they're all okay. Like I don't think he ever released an album that was bad. I even think Golden Age of Grotesque is quite good. That was the one that came out after Hollywood, and I like that one a lot. But still, even as a diehard Marilyn Manson fan, I was I would say, well, Manson is somebody from, you know, a long time ago, kind of a nostalgia. Uh, but I heard this album, which was his ninth album from 2015, was some of his best work in years or maybe some of his best work ever. I initially heard this from, of all people, TJ Kirk, YouTube's The Amazing Atheist, who I'm not a fan of. But he does legitimately like Marilyn Manson, uh, in a like, like as a real Marilyn Manson fan, you can tell when somebody else is. You can easily have a conversation because he's somebody a lot of people don't really take seriously, don't really respect for whatever reason. So I can I can kind of tell when somebody likes him. So I was like, well, if he is a real fan and he thinks it was that good, maybe I'll give it a listen sometime. And I did, and I agree, it really is certainly. Certainly the best album since Hollywood, very, very easily, and maybe his best album of all time, musically. It will never mean as much to me as those albums before because of the period of my life I was in when they came out, uh, you know, how much I related to them, to the content, to them. I connected with, in particular, Antichrist Superstar and Mechanical Animals to a deeper extent than almost any other popular album I can think of those ones. And probably Britney Spears blackout are the albums that I have the deepest personal connection to. And Hollywood I actually thought was the strongest album of the three, even though it was the one that I personally related to the least before this album, I would have said that was probably his best album. And it's like, no, you can't compare the pale emperor to those albums. He's a different person, a different time in his life, but it's like musically, 
I would probably rather listen to the pale emperor than those. I've listened to it several dozen times since the time I've listened to it. Hmm. It doesn't drag at all. I like every song on it. There are no tracks that I skip. Um, How long is it? Uh, like 50 minutes, I think. Wow. And um, this is, he's working with a new musical collaborator, a guy named Tyler Bates, who he met working on the show Californication. And they hit it off. They're like, well, let's make an album. So they did. Uh, this guy Bates wrote all of the music and played all the instruments with the exception of the drums. Um, and Manson wrote the lyrics and sang. And so, and had the follow-up album, the one after this, which called Heaven Upside Down, was also with Tyler Bates. And I think that one was also really good. Not as good as The Pale Emperor, but certainly a return to form. And it's like, yeah, between those two, I'm like, yeah, Manson's back. Definitely will be interested in the next album. And, you know, from there. You should go see him live. Yeah, I would love to. It's probably expensive, though. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I would love to see Manson live at some point. Um, the first song in this album, Killing Strangers, we saw in uh, John Wick, had a musical montage set to that. Uh, other good songs in this album, Deep Six, I guess one of the best singles he ever did. <clears throat> Third Day of a Seven Day Binge, he does this cool humming thing with his voice in it. And I will say that his his vocals are as good as they've ever been. I mean, Manson is, I think he's a pretty good rock singer. He's got a distinct voice. I can always tell it's him like right away as soon as I hear him. Yeah. He has one of the best screams in rock. Yeah, I agree. Mm. And I think he was obviously reinvigorated by this material because he sounds great. He sounds better than he has in years. Cool. Um, I think he said that this material brought out the redneck in his voice. That was kind of funny. A lot of people describe this as a blues rock album, which I could see as people compared it to uh, L.A. Woman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like not only like it sounds like L.A. Woman is like in a similar place in Manson's career as that album was in the Doors career. Do you know who uh, Anthony Fantano is? Yeah. I, I looked at his review for this album and and he liked it. He didn't love it, but he liked it. But as far as the blues thing, like there was one portion where he's like and there's one song where they even tried for a a blues rock sound but they were just so bad at it that i'm glad that they didn't experiment with that genre for the rest of the album i'm like okay just another example of make up whatever the fuck you want to believe and and go for it yeah no, i anthony fantano is not someone i respect yeah but that's funny yeah no i don't really respect him either i um yeah, he trashed like Lil Xan's album and a couple other albums, which that is a bad album. But like if you listen to when that was album of the week, I'm like, yeah, it's bad, but it's supposed to be. You're listening to it wrong. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I think as with anybody, like, why are you reviewing albums across so many different genres? You can't possibly like all this stuff. Come on. Yeah. I don't know. I'll just, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other good songs are there. We got. Uh, Cupid carries a gun, which is another one of my favorite songs of the album. The re- which has the vocal refrain "Pound me the witch drums." I, I don't know where that came from. That sounds pretty stoner. Yeah. Um, like I said, uh, White Zombie had a song. Cupid, Cupid's got a gun. It was is it was an electric head, right? Yeah, that was a line. And Manson and Rob Zombie just went on tour. I hope they did some kind of a reference to that, combined into a super band. 
for Cupid, one lyric. Cupid carries an electric head. That could mash up the whole song. Why not? Yeah. Kid Rock used to do that. He'd do um, American Badass and then transition right into Sad But True. Just Dude, do the whole song. Right on. Yeah. I fucking miss White Zombie. Yeah. White Zombie were a good band. They, uh, I like White Zombie a lot better than Rob Zombie's solo records myself. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to, uh, you know, well, actually a number of his records, but uh, now I'm blanking on the name of the record. Uh, the one that everybody likes. Astro Creep? Astro Creep 2000, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, because we had it at work. I think we still have it somewhere. We had the CD at work, and I put it on after not hearing it for like a long time since I was like a teenager. I was like, this album fucking kicks. I just listened to it over and over and over. It is good. So, and I've. The yeah. one before that was good too. Los Exorcist yeah. I think those are probably equally good in my opinion. That's a come my fanatics dope drone situation. Yeah. Well, I guess that's all I need to say about the Pale Emperor. Fucking kick ass record, man. It's going in my regular rotation for sure. Sweet. And it's great. Like an artist that you loved can come back and do like their best work years later, like Monster Magnet or even Britney Spears. I've had a similar experience with both of them where it's like album nine, album 10, you really start to hit your stride. It's good shit, man. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. My album of the week, Dope Throne, Trans-Canadian Anger. I had a feeling you might pick this one. Yeah. I haven't stopped listening to this record since I heard it for the first time five days ago. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, this is one motherfuck of a record. There's not a bad second on it as far as stoner records go. Mm-hmm. It's got like everything that I like about stoner bands and plus like some black metal elements to it too. Yeah, yeah. Like the vocals. It's just it's super harsh and heavy and catchy and awesome. Like the best titles I've mm-hmm. seen in a long time. Like they made videos for a number of the songs too, like Killdozer. Yeah. Fucking great. It's just people eating shit. Not literally, but like, you know, people getting into fights and like hurting themselves and, you know. Yeah, this is the internet. You got to be careful what you say. Get, yeah, getting into scrapes with the cops and stuff. It's really awesome. Um, I think it's at the beginning of the second song. There's even a story about a guy, this biker, who. He's traveling along in the middle of the night going, you know, top speed and he sees these goats in the middle of the road and he doesn't have time to swerve or stop or anything. So he just plows right through them and the goats fucking explode on him. There's just guts and shit all over him and his bike, you know, under the, under the bike. It's just like cooking. It's all over his pant legs, no blood or anything, just guts and shit. <laughs> and it took him like a good hour and a half to get to a bathroom, a gas station bathroom. And he's just like gagging and crying just because it stinks so bad. What a pussy ass bitch. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's a good way to open a song. Yeah. So. Yeah. If you're going to start with like a long sample, it better be good. Yeah. And it's a Canadian guy, obviously. It's probably, maybe it's one of the guys in the band. Who knows? Yeah. But I just imagine it was like, I don't know, Chris Jericho telling a story or something. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Took me like an hour and a half, eh? Yeah. Get to a washroom. Just guts and shit. <laughs> so yeah, Dope Throne, the band, of course, named after the legendary Electric Wizard album, which, you know, we've mentioned a couple times on the show. Just wanted to clear that up. But um, 
Yeah, that's was that their fourth album? It's certainly the best one, like by far. Because at first, I thought Dope Throne was like a second tier stoner band because they were so um, I don't know, garagey, I guess. But I liked them enough. I put a patch on my vest. But it's like I'm glad to see that they've really come into their own because I'm like, yeah, that's actually really good, and I uh, I look forward to seeing where you go from there. Yeah, they've really set their shit up. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've always liked how kind of gnarly how harsh that the band sounds because mm-hmm. i mean you know the stoner bands you tend to sort of think of these like almost southern rock kind of vocals mm-hmm. where it's it's singing yeah but no this is straight up just like metal this black metal very harsh yeah so so i i uh i listened to the new uh orange goblin album this week too i like that one and that one had like it's because you mentioned the vocals is what reminded me of it because Orange Goblin is known as like a stoner band. And I guess they are. But this one, if I could describe it as anything, I would say like biker rock. It's a an underutilized label, but I think it's valuable. But yeah, the vocals are very clean, very aggressive. Talking about being a renegade and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But so. I, I love when you're going to be very direct and very sincere uh, it's you know if it goes wrong it can go very wrong but I think it went right on this one so I was I was pleased to listen to it yeah yeah like we always say it's a it's a stoner golden age the albums come out much much faster than than you can keep track of them yeah Black Rainbows came out with a new record not too long ago yeah that was, that was it's really good have you ever like seen the the person behind the Stone Metal of Doom YouTube channel. Uh, like he's, he's done like a video where it's just like channel update or something like that. Yeah. He's just kind of some guy, right? Yeah. Cause at first I was like, I, I imagine it had to be a, like a team, but for him to just be like one person, cause it's a popular channel. People like that, that type of music. Like everybody knows that channel. That's where I go for new bands. So obviously if you're in a band, you want him to put your album up, right? So he probably gets albums like all the time and he's got to listen to them and be like, well, what's good enough to go on this channel? Like, man, that's a lot of, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So I'm. Glad he loves it. Yeah. I mean, there's that. Plus there's like the festival that he puts on. Hmm. You know, I didn't, I didn't heard about that. Yeah. He already did one. I guess it went well and he's going to do another one. So yeah. yeah, it would probably like just listening to all that stuff. That's probably the problem with being a critic. Talk about Dave Meltzer, wrestling critic, movie critics is the same thing. If your job is just watch everything, you probably watch too much, man. Like I wouldn't like, I love stoner metal, right? Love stoner metal. I wouldn't want to listen to every stoner metal album that comes out. Yeah. Like every single day that, that people like, what are you going to do? I'm going to listen to stoner metal albums for eight hours today. That's my job. Yeah. At a certain point, I mean, it's like you, you have to develop certain criteria, don't you? You would have to. You, you can't just listen. I mean, if you listen to everything, it's going to just become a bore and you don't want that. That's a problem with stoner metal in general is it can get kind of samey. You, it's good when you can do something to stand out. Yeah. So, and it takes a really, really exceptional band to do just straight up, you know, straight up stoner doom and still be amazing. It's, yeah. it's there aren't a lot of bands like that. So in a field with a lot of bands. Yeah. Yeah. Like there are certain bands. God, what was it called? Some, some kind of horse. I forgot about this band's name the last time I talked about them on the show. Hmm. I'm sorry. But there's like some band that it was like Warhorse or something. Yeah, it might be it might be. But they came out with a stoner album that, when it came out, would have 
blown you away. It would have floored you. You'd be like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. But now if you listen to it, it's like, this sounds like five dozen other bands. Like everybody has caught up to that sound. So like if you had heard it when nobody else had done it, that'd be one thing. But now that it's, there's nothing unique about that sound anymore. It's just, it, it, it all kind of runs together. And it's like, I guess all of these bands are equally skilled musicians, but one of them were innovators and the rest of you were not. Yes. I mean, that's how a lot of scenes grow. Yeah. So they propagate. You have like a template band and everyone copies them. It's like every, at first every punk rock scene had, you know, a Ramon sounding band or 50, like, cause it's fun to play. People want to hear that shit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's a hard temptation to resist, I guess. It's like, we can play this stuff. Let's just do that. Or maybe, maybe you love it. Who knows? I mean, it's, it's a new thing. So it's kind of hard to gauge. It's like, this just came out and I already immediately loved us. Let's, yeah. let's sound like that band. So when that happens, you kind of have to, just as a fan, you have to kind of question where those other bands motivations lie. It's like, were you just not good enough to be your own kind of band? Or do you, like genuinely just want to sound like this particular band. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a conversation we'll probably have to have at some point on some other show. Yeah. This will take a long time. I don't know. Yeah. I will say most stoner bands now just sound like sleep anyway. So yeah, man, sleeper electric wizard. Yeah. I mean, that was second wave or third wave. That was second wave. Second wave nineties. So, yeah. So yeah, they were the template. And before that, but it sounded like Black Sabbath. Yeah. Or Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, St. Vitus or Candle Mass. Yeah. See, that's what I was thinking. Like that was the second wave and then Sleep and Electric Wizard were the third wave. But maybe that was all kind of at the same time. I don't really know. Yeah. I need to brush up on my stoner history. Yeah. Well, it's like, you Too know. stoned. I can't remember. <laughs> it's like a band does something without a name for years and years. Mm-hmm. A bunch of nerds, like metal nerds, say... God, that's that remember that music that was fun as fuck. We should have a band like that. It's like, okay, let's you know, we should we should do that and see what happens. That band, the second band, gets sort of looked at as innovators of a scene mm-hmm. when what they do catches on eventually. It's like, oh, they're the pioneers. It's like, well, no, if you want to look 15 years back, this band was a pioneer or these bands were pioneers. So like that's sort of the question I was referring no, to. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because yeah. at first like the origins of that type of music would definitely be Black Sabbath and a few other bands, Blue Cheer, even Led Zeppelin, I guess, mm. Rainbow. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, bands like St. Vitus or Trouble dude, came along. And that was definitely like an era before the Sleep Electric Wizard era. Now it's a different one. But I don't know. I guess ultimately it doesn't matter. Yeah. But it is, um, I don't know, food for thought, yeah. I guess. All right. Uh, Al from Sleep and Ohm summing it up really well just as far as what Stoner Doom is uh, at least how they do it they're like you know we used to listen to these records when we were teenagers and we you'd get to a part where it's like it would be only 30 seconds but we'd listen to it and be like why doesn't that part happen some more it should, you know why doesn't that part go on for like 15 minutes it should yeah so I remember that that was I I was pretty much like, yeah, right on. That's exactly how I look at it. Yeah. That's that's like, I remember ha- saying almost the same thing about uh, the little John and Trick Daddy song, Let's Go, which used the Crazy Train sample. And yeah. everybody was like, fuck this song. I'm like, what are you talking about? 
Crazy Train had like a good riff. It's a shitty song. They took the one part of Crazy Train that was good and they just looped it over and over again and they did some gangsta ass rap over it. That's what I call a win. Yeah. He also sampled Slayer. I would, yeah, say, yeah. I would say it's still pretty good. I would say to a lesser effect. He didn't improve that. They, you're not going to improve that song or that riff. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, it. it's true. Crazy Train is one of Ozzy's weakest songs, but it does have an excellent riff. So that's like the best thing you can do with it. Yeah. How can you save a good riff on a bad song? There you go. Yeah. It's good. Bark of the Moon is probably my favorite Ozzy song. That's a good song. Or uh, Mr. Crowley. Yeah, those first few records are all really good. Well, the, the Randy Rhodes era is fucking awesome. Yeah. So. The content of all those songs is stupid. <laughs> um, like singing about Aleister Crowley and stuff. And by the way, that's true of like Marilyn Manson as well. The Pale Emperor this is all about like atheism and shit. I'm like, this is fucking dumb. Who cares? So I guess I've finally answered Eddie Murphy's question from Delirious. Do, do y'all listen to the words or the, the beat? So I listen to the beat. I apparently don't care what you're saying. As long as it sounds good. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same way. Yeah. Where it's like, that's the thing that catches in my brain. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics are sort of an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, in my opinion, I think like great lyrics can make a song better, but like bad lyrics don't detract from a song at all. Yeah. If the beat's all right, yeah. she'll dance all night. There you go. All right, man. Are, are we wrapping up or what, what do you think? How much time have we... Been jabbering. Uh, almost two hours. That sounds like a show. Yeah. All right. Um, next time is Simple Plan. Anything else? Or let me see how um, it goes. Oh, you, we were going to start. Uh, we've kind of done it anyway, just based on circumstances. But I think you had suggested that we would eventually move to like an every other week format. Yeah. So you, I mean, if you listen to the show, that's how it's been for a while, but it will continue to be that way. Yeah. I mean, it's been accidental. Yeah. Just because of life stuff, but yeah, that'd be a good sort of way to do it from now on. I think it'll probably enhance the show because it's like you and I, we never like hang out at all anymore. Like the only time I ever see you is when we do the podcast. So it's like, well, we need to get some material for the podcast and then it'll kind of enhance the podcast. Yeah. So. All right. I guess we can leave it there then. Yeah.